Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this evening. We thank you for the present freedoms that we enjoy and the blessings that you have bestowed upon us, that we can gather together in safety, that we can enjoy the uh, snacks that we've had this evening in this time of fellowship. Uh, this is a blessing and a privilege that many Christians around the world do not enjoy. And so we are mindful of these things and we are thankful. And we are also thankful that we can set aside this time uh, to study your word, uh, to consider this most important subject uh, concerning uh, our salvation and to understand the scope and the depth of it. And Father, we just pray this evening as we take this time to look into your word that we will be sensitive to the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the biblical text. We pray that we will be challenged by these things that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to switch over here and go live streaming on Facebook. So let me get a moment to get this situated. We'll go live there. And Dan, you'll have to let me know that that's uh, a green light. <clears throat> okay, let me switch screens here as well. Okay. All right, so we are continuing our study on the subject of soteriology. Soteriology is the study of salvation from the Greek word soter, which means savior, and logos, which means the study of or the word about something. And so in our current section, we are talking about the suffering, the crucifixion, and the death of Christ and uh, in our last section, we talked about the, the we talked about the cross. Uh, we talked about the crucifixion. Uh, we talked about who crucified Jesus, who was involved in that. And so tonight we're going to pick up and cover some more material, and we're going to look at what Jesus suffered by men, that is, uh, people who uh, tried him and, and led him to the cross. So let me go ahead and jump into the notes here, and we'll be chasing down lots of Scripture references as normal. Now, Jesus loved the Father, and you find a number of passages in this, but John 14, 31 uh, states it quite plainly. John 14, 31 says, "...but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me." And by the way, love, when it comes to our relationship with God, is connected with obedience. Uh, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And for us, it's a walk of faith. Uh, for Jesus, uh, you know, walking in the will of the Father was something that he had always done. He'd never sinned. He'd never, at any time throughout his life, his human life, been separated from the Father. He'd always done the will of the Father. And he says, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Furthermore, Jesus submitted himself to do the Father's will. There is a volitional aspect to that. Uh, one can think of in Matthew 26, where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says here that he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. 
Now, remember that when we're looking at Christ during his time of ministry on the earth, we have to take into account uh, the fact that he is undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. And in theology, we call that the doctrine of the hypostatic union. And we know that there were times where Jesus spoke from his divine nature. In John 8, when he said, before Abraham was, I am. And he used the Greek phrase, ego ami, which is the equivalent of the Hebrew Yahweh. And so the Jews understood that he was God. They didn't accept it, of course, but they picked up stones to stone him because they knew his claim to deity. Jesus also forgave sins, and of course, only God can forgive sins, and of course, being divine, he can do that. And he did many things. He raised the dead, he healed the sick, he caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, fed the multitudes. He received worship, which only God can receive worship. So we see times where he is operating from his divine nature, but we also see times where he's operating from his humanity. Uh, such as when he got hungry or when he got tired. God doesn't get hungry. God doesn't get tired. Uh, And when he comes to the cross and dies upon the cross, God cannot die, but humanity can die. And here in this passage, we see Christ here in this struggle, but this is a struggle from his humanity, from his human nature. And so we see this here where he says, uh, you know, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Uh, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Very famous phrase there. Again, verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. So we see these uh, examples here where Jesus submitted himself to the Father. Obedience uh, was what marked his life. Uh, We think of in uh, Romans 5.19 where it says, For as through one man's disobedience, now that's Adam, uh, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the word one there is capitalized because it's talking about Jesus. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now that's interesting because it tells me that we can have a mental attitude that is similar to that of the Lord himself, and that is one of humility and one of submission. Notice verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And the word emptied there translates the Greek verb kanao, and there's a whole doctrine called the doctrine of kenosis. And it, what it means is that Jesus voluntarily surrendered the right to use some of his divine attributes. I mean, like when he's in the garden, you know, when he's in, when, when uh, he's being betrayed and the Roman soldiers come in. I mean, he could have stopped that. He could have just, you know, had a thought and everything, everybody disappears. But he, he chose to operate from his humanity. And so he voluntarily uh, surrendered the right to use some of his attributes. He didn't give them up. He didn't cease to maintain them or to, ha- or to have them. Uh, that's a false way of thinking. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and notice being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. Notice he humbled himself to what end? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So Jesus loved the Father and submitted himself to do the Father's will, which included enduring the illegal trials of his accusers, as well as the eventual mockings, beatings, and crucifixion. And all that Jesus suffered was prophesied in Scripture. Now, some of this is prophesied from the Old Testament prophets. Some of it comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. You think of in Genesis 3.15, where God is pronouncing uh, uh, curses upon uh, Adam and Eve, upon the creation, and upon the serpent. And he says to the serpent in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now that's interesting language there, because the word seed is not found uh, in use with a, with a woman. It's, it's used with men. Uh, but here, the language is used with regard to uh, the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And then it says, and he shall bruise you on the head. That's a fatal blow. And you shall bruise him on the heel. And this passage here uh, would have provided a glimmer of hope because what God is doing is he's letting, know, he's letting the woman know that through you will come a descendant who will crush the head of the serpent, the one who led the deception, the rebellion, that he will defeat the serpent, and by implication, uh, the curse associated with the serpent, and this, you know, down the road in the eternal state, of course. But it says here, but he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And in theology, this is called the Proto-Euangelion, that is the first gospel, it's the first mention but this reference here to he shall bruise you on the head. We also think of other uh, passages that uh, speak about the, uh, the suffering and the crucifixion of Christ. Psalm 22 is most notable. Uh, and these are words that uh, reflect the thoughts of Christ while he's on the cross. Notice it says, For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. And, you know, Psalm 22 could have been written, you know, as long as a thousand years before the crucifixion. And then he says, they look at me, they look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so there he's talking about what the Roman soldiers would do at the foot of the cross when they would divide his garments and cast lots. Other passages that talk about the suffering of Messiah upon the cross, Isaiah, 40, Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 7, it says, The Lord has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. And again, this is thought to be a reference to, uh, it's a messianic passage here in Isaiah, uh, referring to Jesus in hypostatic union. This is in his humanity. Um, and then he says in verse 5, The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, notice that, nor did I turn my back. And here we have a picture of the attitude of Christ during the time of his suffering. He says in verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. We're going to see all these things mentioned in the Gospels here shortly. So these things, again, are prophesied about Messiah. Verse 7, 
For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint. I know that I will not be ashamed. Of course, Isaiah 52, 14, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Because remember that he was beaten in the face, and he was scourged, and this would have caused his face to swell, you know, at that sort of beating. Isaiah 53, a passage we went through in detail a few months ago, but let me just read through this. Uh, Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And that's interesting because he, remember, he didn't seek to defend himself. He did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Notice his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Well, that's talking about Joseph of Arimathea and the fact that he's going to, we're going to see these verses where he's going to be placed in this tomb. Uh, so he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Now, this speaks of, of what occurs on the cross. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, if he would render himself, remember that the Father sent and Christ went. Christ willingly went to the cross and laid down his life. Um, and so if he would render himself as a guilt offering speaks to this language. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Again, this will be taken upon him while he's on the cross. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death, he poured out himself to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Think of in Matthew 26, verse 67 and 68. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? So here we see some of the mocking and the beatings that go on. And by the way, I'll repeat some of these verses as we go through here. Uh, Mark 10:32. here Jesus prophesied his own. Uh, suffering. It says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them 
what was going to happen. So he's informing them, and this is prophetic in nature, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So we see these prophecies that speak about these future events. Now, God the Father, we must always remember, was in complete control of the circumstances surrounding the trials and crucifixion of Jesus. We must always remember that the sovereignty of God is in control in these situations. Now, he's not causing these wicked people to behave wickedly. Uh, He's allowing them to behave wickedly. But what's interesting is he's using even their evil actions to bring about his desired plan, which is ultimately to put Christ upon the cross. And that's just the brilliance of God. Notice Acts 2.23. Let me back up to put context here. This is Peter. He's talking to the men of Israel, unbelievers here. He says, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. But notice verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This man, that's Jesus, was delivered over well, to the leadership, to these, uh, to these leaders, uh, to be tried, was delivered over by the predetermined plan. Remember from eternity past, God the Father planned our salvation. And he commissioned the Son, and he sent the Son, and the Son went. The Son came into the world. He took upon himself humanity. This was nearly 2,000 years ago. But all of the events going leading Christ to the cross was all part of his predetermined plan. And according to the foreknowledge of God, he foreknew that these things would happen, but he planned these things to happen. Notice Acts 4, 27 and 28, where we have a prayer that is being prayed to God. And in the prayer, it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. And notice who was gathered together against him. Herod, Pontius Pilate, that's Gentile leadership, and the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, and they're being gathered together against Jesus, notice verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And this just goes to show that the evil actions of men cannot thwart or destroy the sovereignty of God, and that God can even use the evil actions of these people to bring about his greater plan and purposes. I think of Joseph, remember, who was betrayed by his brothers who wanted to kill him. They sold him into slavery. And he goes down to Egypt. And then, you know, the debacle with Potiphar's wife, you know, that way that whole thing turns out. And then he winds up in graduate school, I mean prison for a couple years. And, uh, and he's in there and he's learning. And he's advancing and he's, he's growing spiritually. Well, then he gets released and he gets elevated to the right-hand position of Pharaoh. And we know how the story goes. And eventually God causes a famine that leads his family, his brothers, to come down to Egypt in pursuit of food. And God orchestrates them coming together. And when Joseph meets his brothers, not once, not twice, but three times, he tells them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's called providence. And it means that God sovereignly orchestrates the events of life in such a way that ultimately the outcome is according to his predetermined plan and not otherwise.
And so Joseph himself is a type of Christ. But we see here where God the Father is in complete control of these events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus. And though Jesus was unjustly attacked, uh, he knew that he was doing the Father's will. This was always in his mind. Notice John 6, 38. I have come down from heaven. Now, this is Jesus talking from his divinity, from his divine nature, because he knows his ultimate source, right? His humanity conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Parthenogenesis, virgin conceived, virgin born. Mary was Christotokos. She's the bearer of the humanity of Christ. Um, And so his humanity had a point of beginning. But here he says, for I have come down from heaven. That's the ultimate source. That's God the Son, the second member of the Trinity. I have come down from heaven. Notice, not to do my own will, but what? The will of him who sent me. He was sent by the Father, and he came down from heaven. He condescended. Uh, It was a condescension of love. He came down to do the will of the Father. So he always knew that it was the will of the Father. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. That's me. That's you. Uh, He says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. And remember, Jesus laid down his life. He willingly surrendered it. He says in verse 18, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Notice the last clause. This commandment I received from my Father. You see, Jesus knew what his marching orders were. He knew what his directives were. And he had the commandment that he received from the Father to come into the world and to live a perfectly righteous life and to do what we cannot do, and that is to live this perfect life and to go to the cross and to die a death he did not deserve in order that we might have a life that we could never, that we could never earn. John twelve twenty seven. now my soul has become troubled. Now he's talking from his humanity. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And remember that throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus several times talks about how my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. And yet when he's right there approaching the cross, he can now say the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be crucified. Here he talks about, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So the ultimate purpose of Christ coming into the world was the cross. The cross was the main point. Um, John 18, 11. Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Again, he knew, he always knew the Father's will. Furthermore, he did not retaliate when he came under attack. You see, this is the brilliance of our Lord and Savior. This is the humility of our Lord and Savior. And notice verse uh, 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23. And Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you. Notice, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. You see, Christ is not only our Savior, 
He is our role model, and he is the one to whom we look for how we should think and how we should act. I mean, even Paul earlier said, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, you can think his thoughts after him, uh, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And notice verse 23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he knew that he was not going to get a fair trial on earth. He knew it. And he knew he was not going to get a fair trial from the Sanhedrin, from Pilate, from Herod. He knew it. He knew he wasn't going to get a fair trial. But before the Supreme Court of Heaven, he was, he, he was going to be treated. God was going to deal justly. And, uh, and so he kept committing himself to him who judges righteously. Now, the four Gospels, interestingly enough, record the arrest, the trials, the mocking, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I do want to point out here, when you're looking at the Gospels, it's important to understand that Matthew, Mark, and Luke refer to events taking place according to Jewish time, in which the day ends at sunset, whereas John relies more on Gentile time, in which the day ends at midnight. You see, when interpreting the Bible, the Bible must be interpreted from the time and the culture within which it was written. And understanding these sort of nuances, these particulars, help us to, uh, well, to understand the chronology of events. So a brief chronology of Jesus' trials, mockings, beatings, crucifixion, and burial is as follows. One, Jesus was arrested during the night. He was arrested during the night, perhaps around midnight. And he faced six illegal trials three religious, and three civil. Now, I have a footnote in there where if you want to look at the trials, uh, the first one was by Annas, the second one by Caiaphas, and the third one was by the Sanhedrin. Those were the religious trials. Then Jesus faced three civil trials before Pilate, Herod Antipas, and then back before Pilate. So this, these six trials all take place. They were all illegal because by both, Jewish, by both Jewish and Roman jurisprudence, you could not conduct trials during the night. And yet they're railroading him. Now, a lot of times when you see these, these, art, these artistic scenes with Jesus standing before Pilate, it's the middle of the daytime. But that, that's not possible because all these trials took place during the night. And again, he was arrested, perhaps around midnight. And the trials must have happened relatively early, uh, as John 19, 14 tells us, that they concluded about six in the morning, about six in the morning. And I've got another footnote there, uh, if you want to chase down some of the particulars about how the different translations translate uh, those phrases. But what happens is, is by 6 a.m., the trials are done. Now, from 6 to 9, Jesus is going to go through, from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., Jesus is going to go through his mockings, his beatings, his scourging. He's going to carry his cross to Golgotha, and he's going to be crucified at 9. He's going to be on the cross for three hours from 9 to noon. And then from noon to 3 is when the sky grows dark. He's going to be judged to bear the sin of humanity during that time. And then at 3 p.m., he's going to die. He's going to simply exhale and not inhale. Uh, So, again, these trials would have been concluded about 6 in the morning. Now, during the religious trials, the chief priests and Sanhedrins tried to secure false testimony about Jesus so that they might have grounds to crucify him. 
Matthew 26, 59 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council, and notice the word council there is capitalized because that's talking about the Sanhedrin. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. Why? So that they might put him to death. You see, we, they, we, they had corrupt courts back then. Uh, this isn't new to humanity. This is endemic to the human race because we're fallen. But nonetheless, they tried to secure false testimony in order that they might have grounds to crucify him. Jesus was beaten uh, in the face and mocked during the trial. Matthew 26, uh, 67 and 68 says, Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him. And they mocked him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? So notice the abuse that he's getting here. This is, this, is very, this, is, this is crazy. Now, after Pilate agreed to the demands of the mob, and you can read about that in Matthew 27, he then had Jesus scourged and handed him over to be crucified. And so Matthew 27, 26 says, Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Um, and number five, Jesus was then mocked and beaten by Roman soldiers. Matthew 27, 27 through 30 says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. So now he's surrounded by these Roman soldiers. And it says they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting uh, together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. Now, this would have caused uh, blood to run down his face as they twisted this thing into his head. And a reed uh, they put in his right hand. Now, the word reed might better be rendered as a staff. Uh, and this was to mimic a king's scepter is what it was intended to do. But they put a reed in his right hand and they knelt down before him and notice and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 30, they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. Uh, so this is, uh, this is very cruel. This is very cruel and very humiliating. Verse 31 tells us, uh, and after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. Uh, Mark 15.25 tells us that Jesus was crucified by 9 a.m. Uh, the NASB says it was the third hour. Well, the third hour uh, would be 9 a.m. And, of course, there's a note here uh, that says by 9. And so this would have been by 9 a.m. is when he is placed on the cross. So these things are happening r relatively quickly. Uh, these trials, these mockings, these scourgings, these beatings, okay? But he was crucified by 9 a.m. Jesus was judged by the Father and bore our sins on the cross from noon to 3. Matthew 27, 45 says, Now from the sixth hour, the sixth hour is what? That's noontime, that's 12 p.m. From the sixth hour, darkness fell uh, upon all the land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., um, and then about the ninth hour, he cried out, uh, Eloi, Eloi, or as Matthew translates it here, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's judged during those three hours, from noon to three when the sky grows dark. And Jesus died 
about 3 p.m. Matthew 27 says, about the ninth hour, again, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 47, And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. This is separate. This is a separate occasion from when he was offered the soporific, the wine mixed with myrrh, uh, which he rejected. And so that was, that was offered earlier on the cross, and he rejected that, but here he, t- he takes a drink of this sour wine. Verse 49, but the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He simply exhaled and did not inhale. He yielded up his spirit. He did not die from the crucifixion, okay? Uh, So Jesus died about 3 p.m., and then Jesus' body was placed in the grave before 6 p.m., that is sunset, because the Jews did not want his body on the cross for the Sabbath. John 19.31 says, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Now, the bodies would be both Jesus and the two criminals crucified on either side so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high, uh, was a high day. Uh, these, um, these Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. So they come to Pilate, and they, they don't want them on the cross past sunset, so they ask Pilate, they say, go and break the legs. Now remember, uh, that is what's called crurifragium. <laughs> it's not an easy word to pronounce, crurifragium. But it means the breaking of the bones. That was the bones below the knee. And this would have prevented them from being able to push up to alleviate the pressure uh, of hanging upon the cross. And so they come to Pilate and they ask that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man crucified with him. So they both had their legs broken. But coming to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and did not break his bones. Remember the, the prophecy in uh, uh, Psalm 22, I can count all my bones. You see, So you see how all these prophecies are being fulfilled. And when you think about the details of the crucifixion, it's, just, it's amazing to think that all of this was foreknown. Of course, it was predetermined in the mind of God from eternity past. So this was all part of his plan, and it was prophesied throughout history and recorded for us. And then when the events come to pass, they come to pass exactly as God had predetermined and as, he had, as it had been prophesied. Now, going on in the notes here, the Jewish trials, all three of them declared Jesus guilty. Of course, we know it was a whole monkey court. The whole system was corrupt through and through. Uh, The Jewish trials declared Jesus guilty, whereas the Gentile trials actually found him innocent. And Jesus was crucified by Gentiles because of the pressure of the Jewish leadership. The crucifixion was physically horrendous and involved not only great physical pain, but also psychological anguish and social humiliation. I have a quote here from William Hendrickson, with which he says crucifixion included, quote, severe inflammation, the swelling of the wounds in the region of the nails, unbearable pain from torn uh, tendons, fearful discomfort from the strained position of the body, throbbing headache, and burning thirst, end quote. So again, quite a horrendous thing there. Now, I've just kind of given the quick summary of how Jesus suffered at the hands of men. 
how Jesus suffered at the hands of men. But let's talk about what Jesus suffered by the Father. Let's talk about what Jesus suffered by the Father. Now remember, as previously mentioned, Jesus was not a helpless victim, but willingly laid down his life for us. John 10, 15, Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. And in John 10, 18, no one has taken it away from me. The Father didn't take it away from him. The Roman soldiers didn't take it away from him. Nobody took it away. He laid down his life. And uh, once, once our salvation work was completed on the cross, he simply yielded up his spirit. And he had that ability. He could, he could yield it up. He could lay down his life. He could take it up again. And, and he did both. But he says, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. You see, Jesus here willingly went to the cross. He knew the will of the Father, and he obeyed it. Now, Scripture reveals in Romans 8, 3, that God the Father sent his Son as an offering for sin. As an offering for sin. And once Jesus was on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 tells us, He, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus Christ, who knew no sin. This is, this is the God-man. This is the theanthropic person. This is the person who went his entire life and committed no sin. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Now, here in the future, we're going to look at the doctrine of imputations, and we're going to see several imputations in the Bible. But all of our sins were uh, placed upon Christ, and he was judged in our place, the just for the unjust, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.18. Uh, Isaiah 53.4 says that he was smitten of God. Notice, smitten of God and afflicted. And Isaiah 53.6 says the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him, to fall on him. And Isaiah 53.10 says, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. So again, this is what Christ suffered at the hand of the Father, that he was judged, that he willingly accepted the wrath uh, of God the Father against our sin. Christ died in our place. He took the blow. He, he, he took the bullet, so to say. He stood in our place, and he died as our substitute. Here I have a, a quote from Colonel Thiem. He says, quote, At the third hour of crucifixion, noontime, ordinarily the brightest period of the day, an impenetrable darkness fell upon the land. For the following three hours, so intense was the suffering of Jesus Christ that the Father hid the Son's face from view. Jesus had, had borne in silence the scourging, the ridicule, and the agony of crucifixion. But the anguish of bearing the sins of the world caused him to scream out again and again, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father had to turn his back on the Son in order to judge him on our behalf. End quote. And Norman Geisler adds, At the center of Christianity is the cross. It is the very purpose for which Christ came into the world. Without him, salvation is not possible. And only through his finished work can we be delivered from our sins. Jesus suffered unimaginable agony and even separation from his beloved father. 
anticipating the cross, his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood. Let me pause for a moment. You, you talk about uh, hot, being under pressure. You talk about high blood pressure, right? I mean, there's tremendous pr- pressure there that his sweat became, as it were, drops of blood. Carrying on by Geisler here, he says, Why the cross and all this suffering unless there is a hell? If there is no hell to shun, then the cross was in vain. Christ's death is robbed of its eternal significance unless there is a hellish eternal destiny from which sinful souls need to be delivered, end quote. And by the way, when we think about the gospel, and we think about the gospel that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day, but the gospel really is to be understood as the solution to a problem. If we don't understand the problem, if we don't understand that God is righteous and holy and he can only do one thing with sin and that is to condemn it, and we are sinners, we are sinners in Adam and sinners by nature and sinners by choice with no way to fix the problem of sin. We are trapped, we are enslaved in in Satan's slave market of sin with no way to liberate ourselves, no way at all. And if it had not been for Christ coming into the world and doing what we cannot do, we would be forever damned. And so when we understand that God is holy, that man is sinful, and that there is this eternal destiny called the lake of fire to which we are all headed unless we, unless we turn to Christ for, as our Savior, then when we understand the problem, only then does the gospel become a solution. And too often we want to give people the gospel without talking about the problem first. And it's only in framing the problem that the solution is less like, yes, please, <laughs> give me that. And it then becomes understood as to why it is so necessary. Now let's move into the section here on Jesus dying twice on the cross. Jesus dying twice on the cross. Now I'm going to front load this discussion here a little bit so that we can understand uh, what's going on here with the death of Christ. First, there are different kinds of death mentioned in Scripture. There are different kinds of death. There's probably about seven different kinds of death that are mentioned in Scripture, but three of them are of importance to our study here. By the way, death does not mean cessation of life, and that's commonly the way that we hear it and we're taught it in our, in our humanistic world. Um, but biblically, death does not mean cessation of life. It doesn't mean that, simply, simply, that something simply comes to, to an end or ceases to be. Death means separation, and that's how we should understand it biblically. Now, the three major kinds of death that are mentioned in Scripture, uh, the, the three major kinds of death are mentioned in Scripture, and these include, one, spiritual death, which is separation from God in time, Two, physical death, which is the separation of the human spirit from the body. And three, the second death or eternal death, which is the perpetuation of physical and spiritual death or separation uh, from God for all eternity. Um, Now, the first one, the separation from God in time. Remember that God told Adam and Eve about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and forbid them to eat from it, saying, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Surely die. You will, you will most certainly die. And notice that will occur in the day that you eat from it. Okay, And yet we know that when Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit, when they followed Satan's deceptive advice, uh, when they ate from that, there was a death 
that occurred. But notice verse 6 of Genesis 3, that the woman took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, which meant that uh, the implication is that Adam was standing there nearby, um, watching this go down and was taking somewhat of a passive role. He should have been intervening, but he wasn't. And so he, uh, he, it was a failure on his part, we might say. Uh, but she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And then you have Operation Fig Leaf, where they're trying to cover themselves and their uh, new state of sin. But a spiritual death occurred. And by the way, even in a state of spiritual death, they still had an awareness of God and a sense of guilt. Notice verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They were Even in a state of spiritual death, they still had an awareness of God. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Well, that's a form of irrationality, because how are you going to hide from God? You see, but this is what sin does. Sin infects the mind, and sin causes... Uh, irrationality, irrational thought and behavior, but they thought they could hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. Uh, So we see how this goes down, but spiritual death means separation from God. Romans 5.12 says, for therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, when did we all sin? We sinned when Adam sinned, because as goes Adam, so goes the human race. 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So we see these examples here. Now physical death, physical. so people that are physically alive but spiritually dead means that they are separated from God in time. They are separated from God in time. Okay, They are not in a relationship with God. Now physical death means the separation of the human spirit from the body. Physical death means the separation of the immaterial part of man from the material part of man. Notice Genesis 35:18 when it talks about Rachel. It says, "It came about as her soul was departing." And then it says parenthetically, "for she died." Well, her soul was departing from where? From her body. Verse 19, "So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem." But notice that her soul departed. Notice Ecclesiastes 12.7, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, that is, the body will return to the earth, and the spirit, the Ruach, will return to God who gave it. So there's that separation. Uh, James 2.26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead. There's that separation that occurs. That's physical death. Then there is the third one, which is called the second death or eternal death, which is the perpetuation of physical uh, and spiritual separation from God for all eternity. You see, in uh, Revelation 20, we're told, Then I saw a great white throne. By the way, no believers will be at this judgment. We will all be in heaven. We're going to face a different judgment, but that has to do with our eternal rewards, not not our place. We'll already be in heaven. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, and from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. You see, having rejected Christ as Savior and not having the righteousness of God credited to their account, they are left to try to muster up their own righteousness to get into heaven. But we know that Isaiah 64, 6 says all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag, which is not acceptable to God. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Titus 3, 5, Galatians 2, 16, and other passages make it very clear that we are not saved by the law or by good works, but they are judged according to their deeds. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Notice, this is the second death, the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, so that is, those, those are the three major forms of death that I focused on here as it relates to this uh, study in soteriology. By the way, remember, if you are born once, you will die twice. If you are born once, you will die twice. That is, if you are born as a human. If you are not born again, then you will die physically, and you will die the second death. You will go into the lake of fire. That's the second death. But if you are born twice, you will die once. If you are born twice, as a once as a human, and then if you are born again, spiritually, have new life imputed to you, given to you, then you will die once. That is physical death. The only exception to that will be the rapture generation, <clears throat> who will not taste death. So spiritual and physical death were introduced into God's creation when the first human, Adam, sinned against God. And God told Adam, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Adam's sin instantly brought spiritual death, but not immediate, immediate physical death as he tried to hide physically from God. Later, Adam died physically at the age of 930. Uh, Genesis 5.5 tells us that. And though Adam was made spiritually alive again, his single sin introduced uh, death in every form into the human race. Except for Jesus Christ, all humanity are born in Adam. Now remember that Jesus did not have a biological father. You see, you see how all these things tie together? Parthenogenesis, virgin conceived, virgin born. He did not have a biological father. Joseph was not his father. He was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Parthenogenesis. And Mary's Christotokos. She's the bearer of the humanity of Christ. And, uh, but Mary, being, <coughs> being, <coughs> excuse me, being a sinner herself, could conceive in her womb this perfect humanity because Adam's original sin and the sin nature are transmitted via the father. You see, it's by one man that sin entered into the world and death through sin. So see, this is the genius of God, that he could produce this biological life in the womb of the Virgin Mary, free from Adam's original sin, free from a sin nature, and when Jesus was born, he could then go his, his entire life, never commit a personal sin, and so he's the only one qualified to go to the cross and die in our place, because he is free. We are slaves. A slave cannot purchase his own freedom. Only a free man can purchase a slave. And Christ was free. And he purchased our freedom with his blood upon the cross. You see, the blood of Christ is the coin of the heavenly realm that purchased our, paid our sin debt. And so <clears throat> we have been liberated by the work of Christ. So except for Christ, all are born in Adam, inherit his original sin, and are spiritually dead and separated from God in time. 
those who reject Jesus as Savior will experience the second death in the lake of fire. Dan, would you grab me a bottle of water, please, sir? And I may go a few minutes over, so bear with me this evening. Now, because all humanity experiences spiritual and physical death as consequences of sin, thank you, sir, most kind of you. I was thinking about getting you water just when you said that. Mm. Thank you. Because all humanity experiences spiritual and physical death as as consequences of sin, it seems that if Jesus is to be our Savior then he must experience the same kind of death that we experience. You see, I front-loaded this on purpose so that you can understand this, this train of thinking here. So again, because all humanity experiences spiritual and physical death uh, as consequences of sin, then it seems that if Jesus is to be our Savior, then he must experience the same kind of death that we experience. Both physical and spiritual death relate to Jesus' humanity and not his deity. Remember that in his humanity, Jesus' fellowship with the Father was temporarily broken during the three hours he was being judged for our sin. This was while God the Father poured out his wrath upon his Son, who paid the penalty for our sins. Jesus' spiritual death should not be understood to mean that there was a break in the essence of the Trinity, uh, for that is not possible. The members of the Godhead, there cannot be a break between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, in the hypostatic union, remember that Jesus is undiminished deity and perfect humanity, and it was only his humanity that bore our sin, not his deity, for sin cannot be imputed to deity, okay? For that would contaminate and corrupt God himself. Now, the writer to the Hebrews cites the words of God the Son as he was about to enter into the world. Hebrews 10.5 says, Therefore, when he comes into the world, well, that's God the Son standing on the edge of time where he's, well, I'm speaking metaphorically here, he's beyond time and space, but bear with me, you can follow my thought. He's about to enter into the world. He's about to take upon himself humanity. And so therefore, when he comes into the world, this is in hypostatic union, he says, and this is what he says to the Father, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. You see? Now, because animal sacrifices under the law code could never take away sin, a perfect and sinless body was prepared for Jesus so that by his personal sacrifice, uh, our sins could be atoned for. And this is why in 1 Peter 2.24, Peter said that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus' spiritual death meant that his humanity was for three hours disconnected from the Father while he was on the cross bearing our sins. Norman Geisler states, death is separation. And spiritual death is spiritual separation from God. W.E. Vine adds, quote, While the physical death of the Lord Jesus was of the essence of his sacrifice, it was not the whole. The darkness symbolized and his cry expressed the fact that he was left alone in the universe. He was forsaken. 
Colonel Theme states, quote, separated from God the Father, the humanity of Christ died spiritually, and this was the price paid to redeem fallen mankind from the penalty of sin. Arnold Fruchtenbaum states, quote, the righteous ones suffered and died in place of unrighteous ones in order to bring them to God. The Messiah died a, a violent physical death, and he also died a spiritual death. J. Dwight Pentecost says, quote, the penalty for disobedience to God was death. This death was the separation of the sinner from God. That is spiritual death. Um, uh, he says that, that is spiritual death. And physical death was the result of prior spiritual death. Therefore, notice his thinking here. Therefore, if Jesus Christ was to satisfy the demands of God's holiness, righteousness, and justice to provide salvation for people who are dead, he would have to experience the same death that separated them from God. He must enter into spiritual death as anticipated in, in, in the prophetic 22nd Psalm, where the sufferer cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Since only that kind of separation or spiritual death could satisfy the demands of a holy God, of a holy just God, Christ would not have been praying that he would be spared that which was essential, end quote. Paul Carline states, quote, Jesus actually died twice. He was first forsaken by the Father during his time on the cross. This is described in Psalm 22, especially verse 1, the cry of dereliction. He quoted on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This spiritual death, uh, this separation from the Father was spiritual death, uh, experienced for others as he was made sin. Uh, Carlene goes on, he says, the father-son relation had been broken for a few hours as sin was being dealt with. That period of forsaking involving spiritual death was what actually paid for sins, end quote. Um, <clears throat> now Jesus' physical death, you see, he died twice. Jesus' physical death occurred afterwards in John 19.30 when he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He just simply exhaled, and he did not inhale. And when Jesus died physically, there was a separation of his human spirit from his body. And to prove he was physically dead, Scripture records that a Roman soldier pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Concerning that, William Hendrickson states, quote, In order to, to ensure that not the slightest possibility would exist that any life had remained in the body of Jesus, one of the soldiers with his lance or spear pierced the side of Jesus. If the spear was held in the right hand, as is probable, it was in all likelihood the left side of Jesus that was pierced. Immediately there came out blood and water. Uh, Hendrickson goes on, he says, John enlarges upon this fact, devoting no less than four verses to it. He must have had a purpose in doing so. It is altogether probable that he was trying to tell his readers that Christ, the Son of God, actually died, that is according to his human nature. The death of Jesus was not a mere semblance, it was real. And the Apostle John had been there himself and had seen the blood and the water flowing from the side of the Lord. So we see where Christ died both spiritually and physically. Spiritually, he was separated from God in time. Physically, he's alive. He's conscious, okay? But he's separated from God for those three hours. And he's being judged. He's bearing our sin upon the cross. And then he dies physically, okay? Uh, 
And so when we think about these things, we must realize that there is great complexity and mystery in the suffering of Jesus on the cross. The complexity of the issue is that Jesus is fully God and man. Remember, again, that sin cannot be imputed to deity as that would corrupt his divine nature. Yet without corrupting his divine nature, Jesus somehow bore our sins in his body on the cross. And he died in our place, 1 Peter 3.18, a verse I probably quoted 50 times so far in our study, but that's all right. Another 50 times, we'll just round it up to 100 by the time we're done with all this. But 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And then Jesus died physically when he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, our ability to reason these things really only takes us so far as our minds are woefully inadequate to grasp the infinitude of the matter. Here, faith must rest in what God has revealed through his written word. Well, actually, I landed on time. How about that? I thought I was going to go over by a few minutes, but uh, we managed to keep it all within, uh, within the hour. How about that? Surprise, surprise. All right, so that is going to close out this particular lesson uh, concerning uh, the trials that Jesus went through, the mockings, the beatings, the scourgings, the crucifixion, all of that happening. What he suffered by the hand of men is what we considered at the beginning. What he suffered by the Father in that all of our sin was placed upon him. He was judged upon the cross, made to bear the wrath of the Father in our place. Of course, this he did willingly when he went and laid down his life. And then understanding the kind of deaths that he died upon the cross. And of course, his shed blood, his tangible shed blood is what purchased our salvation, his physical blood that was shed. Because remember that we were redeemed, uh, we were purchased, we were liberated from Satan's slave market of sin by the precious blood of Christ. And always remember that the blood of Christ is the coin of the heavenly realm that paid our sin debt. And so he did for us what we cannot do. And so in understanding these things, this really unpacks our salvation. And uh, uh, next week, when we gather back, we're going to look at the value of Jesus' death for God and Christians. And we're not going to look at everything, but I've got a list here of things, of blessings that come to us because of what Christ did for us. There is a wonderful portfolio of spiritual assets that come to the Christian uh, at the moment of faith in Christ. And you can read through. I mean, you can, you can read through the notes. You can see what it is. And we receive tremendous blessing because of what he did upon the cross. It just simply staggers the imagination to try to wrap our brain around these things, to understand the manifold grace of God, the goodness of God, in, in that he showers these wonderful blessings upon us because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And it helps us to appreciate our so great salvation and what was actually accomplished by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to bring us into this wonderful relationship with him. And, uh, and it's really, it's, just, it's very, very fascinating to think about all this. All right, so I'm going to stop it there, and then I will open it up to any questions. Do we have any questions 
Um, my voice almost gave out, but that's all right. We survived to the end on that one, too. I can hardly recognize you. <laughs> uh, from our online just yet. Okay, anybody in here have any questions? I have uh, uh, yeah, Jim. Actually, so someone else pops in. Um, the third hour, yeah. this is just sort of a comment, the third to sixth hour, sounds like it was almost more brutal than the previous nine hours from this being arrested at right <clears throat> right because he suffered more between the three to six hours than it sounds like that he suffered the whole previous trials and his scourging and the thorns and everything else yes when you take it as a package it's staggering because he goes into the garden he's struggling in his in his own soul Okay, with facing the cross. Then he goes and he's and he's he's betrayed by Judas. He's arrested, and then he faces these series of, of illegal trials, uh, and he's mocked and he's beaten and he's scourged and he's crowned of thorns and he's humiliated. That doesn't compare to what he still has to face. What he still has to face, and then he goes and then he has to carry his cross. And of course, he gets some help along the way. A man who comes into the city who didn't know that he was going to, uh, in a city where there were probably two million people, he, he comes and he comes to this pathway and all of a sudden he's recruited, hey, you, you're going to carry this cross. Um, you know, so that, that storyline goes in there too. I didn't unpack everything. But then he goes to the cross and then there's the crucifixion itself. And then he's mocked even while he's on the cross. I mean, they continue to mock him. And then there's the actual trial, the judging of our sin from noon to three. yes. I mean, it is just horrendous to think about that. And then I think that kind of answers my question I had just before that. And I was, you know, our sin was placed upon him. And I think of that, and sort of metaphorically, if we take, you know, we're going to lift some weights. So we're going to put, you know, 100 pounds on the bench press. Mm -hmm. But every person in the whole world is putting that 100 pounds. So he's lifting all that weight, not just one individual. Right. He's taking all of our sin at one time, not just one right. individual. Right, right. You're absolutely right. And that in itself is staggering because you think about the first sin of Adam to the last sin of the last human on this earth. All the sin of humanity, billions and billions of people, and all of their sins are placed upon Christ. And he's made to be judged. And this, this for he says, you know, for this purpose came I into the world. What purpose? To die. And a body you have prepared for me. And in his own body, he, he bears our sins. I mean, it's just, it's just it's staggering to think about. Could you explain this once more? Yep. The, um, if the Trinity can never be separated. Right. <clears throat> his spiritual death. You know, I, I'm at a cross. I don't know. I'm at a wall at that point. Because when you think about Christ in hypostatic union, he is simultaneously God and man. But if he's spiritually dead, then he's separated well, and, and I know, and that's why I'm saying there's some complexity uh -huh. here. We don't we don't understand all the details of how this can happen. How do you how do you separate that out? I don't know, but it's it's understood that we cannot impute sin cannot be imputed to deity. That that cannot happen. We cannot. It cannot. You know, that's just it's not possible. And 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 the scripture never the scripture never says that. Yeah. By the way, the scripture is very clear that it was always in his body. Uh, that he bore our sins, always in reference to his humanity. And now there may be somebody out there that has explained this adequately. I don't know. Uh, I just know that that is one of the tensions that we wrestle with. But that's why I closed out at the very end, just saying, look, we're, we're very finite, yeah. and we cannot grasp the infinite nature of some of these details. But they do naturally pop, don't they? 
And then the other one, and I think <coughs> it was answered too by just listening a little bit longer. Um, Mary had sinned. Mary was a sinner. But Jesus didn't get any of her sin because her semen never went in there, whatever you want. Right, to say. right. They didn't. Right, they didn't copulate. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. See, and, and this, is, this is where you get into the, the particulars of the theology. And it's a very intricate, it's like a spider web. You pull on one strand and the whole thing begins to move. It's very, very intricate. And there's a lot of pieces to it. It's very, very complex. So, yeah. Stephanie. Yeah. Well, I had some thoughts. Some of mine kind of blend into yours. Mm. Um, so, like, as far as Jesus' physical death and his spiritual death, you know, as far as our uh, being a sacrifice and atonement for our sin. The way that I see it is that those sins weren't personally his. He didn't do those. Right, they were not his sins, right. Correct, right. Mm -hmm. So even though he was become, he was being the atonement, he was bearing ours, he was carrying ours, like weight, mm -hmm. it's almost like he's physically carrying the weight, if you want to say, that came out of us. It didn't come out of him, right. but he still had the ability to carry it. So it was placed upon him, correct. Right, so that... Him not being, like deity, not being able to sin, or that separation of the Trinity is simultaneously possible, even though Jesus physically and spiritually died because the sin wasn't his mm -hmm. sin. It was our sin. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So he was able to spiritually, physically die and still simultaneously not be separated from God right, right, and and right, and and this is where understanding the doctrine of the hypostatic union is so critical. And it's, it, I mean, you could spend literally years mm -hmm. unpacking just the hypostatic union. Right. He wasn't being punished for his own sin; right. it was for ours. Right, and yeah. so there were things that Jesus could do in his humanity and could not do in his humanity. The deity, you know, right. it, it, the opposite wasn't true for deity. Right. Okay. And so in his, and the scripture is very clear. I mean, Hebrews is very clear. A body you have prepared right. for me, you know, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for, that's humanity. Mm -hmm. And in his own body, he bore our sins. And, you know, you're very clear. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's why I bring these, these things in, because it helps us to understand some of these nuances. Right. And again, whatever we do with the hypostatic union, however we understand the theanthropic person, the God-man, mm -hmm. That union, once it occurs, is forever. But how do we how do we reconcile these things? That times he spoke from his deity, and times he spoke from his humanity, and and you know I, I don't know how that coalesces. But again, I'm I'm not God, right. and so God was able to accomplish these things without his own nature being corrupted in any way. Right. And and Christ, as perfect humanity, actually went to the cross and died. I mean, yes, he actually bore the punishment for our sins. Right. So yeah. Okay. And I think that, you know, it's much different it being your own sin versus someone else's sin. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Right. And then and by the way, when we think of salvation, salvation is subtraction and addition. It is actually the removal of our sin. Listen, here in a couple of weeks, we're going we're gonna to jump into some rich theological words. And one of the words we're going to look at is the, is the doctrine of expiation. Uh, atonement in the Old Testament from the Hebrew verb kafar means to cover. And the Old Testament sacrifices were just like putting a blanket over sin. It was a covering. It was a temporary arrangement. But when Jesus comes, he actually takes away sin. And that's why John one twenty nine says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Your sin is actually uh, subtracted from you and judged upon Christ. And by the way, all of your sin, past, present, and future, 
I mean, all of our sins were future from the time of Christ and the cross, but all of our sins are placed upon him. But then it's, it's, salvation is not just subtraction, it's addition. Because we receive eternal life. We receive the gift of righteousness. And that's part of that exchange. He died for us, the just, for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. But we receive his righteousness. That doesn't make us righteous in, in our behavior. It means that we receive the gift of righteousness. But likewise, he, he, our sin was placed upon him. That didn't make him a sinner in person or nature. It just meant that that was credited to him and he was judged as though it were there, us there on the cross ourselves. It's like a child going and breaking the law and they get caught. You go to, you go to help them out and mm-hmm. the cops show up and you're both there and you're like, I didn't, <clears throat> so your kid doesn't go to jail. Right. You didn't commit the crime. But you're but willing, you're willing to take the hit. The hit, exactly. And so that's kind of how I see that. But. Yeah. And then also like how you were saying about Mary being a sinner uh, but they're not being like like we know how you know, kids are made and stuff. But in Genesis it says the woman seed. The woman seed. Obviously, the woman can't have seed. But in in reproduction, the man has a seed, but the woman has the egg. The whole language is designed to make you go what? Right. <laughs> you you kind of cock your head like what? what? What it makes me think of is so Jesus was born of a woman under the law. Uh huh. Jewish, Jewish. Galatians four four. Born of a woman, born under the law. Right, mm-hmm. so they were Jewish. Well, Orthodox Judaism doesn't associate the Jewishness with the father. It mm-hmm. associates the Jewishness with the mother. Mm-hmm. And so that's how they identify that is with the mom, not the yeah. dad. But with the sin nature, it's through Adam. It's uh-huh. through, the, it's through the, the man. human father. Mm-hmm. And so even though Jesus was born of a woman... He was identified as a Jew because Orthodox Judaism identifies yeah. as the mother. You know what's interesting he too? Have sin, yeah. He doesn't have the sin. Yeah. Doesn't have the biological father. Yeah. You know, and the, and the Catholic Church says Mary was sinless. Yeah. You know, and yeah, they they, they, they say that she also did not have that she was sinless, and that's yeah. not true. Yeah. That's not true. Yeah. <laughs> of course, they say Jesus didn't have any brothers or sisters, and that's false too. You know, because after after Jesus was born, uh, Joseph and Mary, you know. Um, had other children, and, you know, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Uh, two of them, two have, have his brothers, wrote uh, New Testament epistles, James and Jude. So, Maybe that's yeah. where but only the brothers are mentioned. Huh? No, it's, well, well, it says, and sisters. But it gives it the four brothers' names. It gives the brothers' names, but, but then it says, but then it talks about how he had sisters, too, plural. So we know he had at least two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that's probably, you know, where a lot of, like, religions get mixed up, or, like, Catholicism and stuff, because... You know, the language in Genesis that talks about her seed, mm-hmm, right. and then she's chosen, and all this stuff, but at the same time, she's a human, so she has sin in her because she has the human father, you know, and all sin being through Adam. Yeah. You know what I mean? But um, I, I did wonder, like with Orthodox Judaism, if that's where they got the association of being Jewish with the mother's DNA, not necessarily right. the father's DNA, yeah. but because of the language in Scripture. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's been a while since I've considered yeah. that. So yeah, but that's interesting to think about, that. though. Yeah. And maybe that's why the Catholics are like, "Oh, we worship Mary." You know what I mean? <laughs> they'll they'll say they don't, but they do. Right, right. right. Um, and there was just one other thing. Okay. So that, that as as you were reading, it made me think of so, um, like in the Old Testament, there was different offerings for different things. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in Romans eight three, it talks about that God the Father sent His Son as an offering for sin. 
in Isaiah 53 10 it talks about how um, he would he would render himself as a guilt offering so it mentions an offering for sin like a sin offering mm -hmm. and a guilt offering and even though they're like come together they're different things mm -hmm. and it made me think about how Jesus delivers us from the penalty of sin but also from the guilt of sin right so even though they come together they're two separate things and Right. Something that I noticed was it's it saying that God the Father sent His Son as an offering for sin. Mm -hmm. But in Isaiah fifty-three ten, it says if He would render Himself. Right, and that's why I that's God. why I'm very careful in my language, and mm -hmm. I say that that Jesus is that 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 he, that the Father sent, mm -hmm. and Christ yeah. went. And I thought that was cool because, yeah. you know, we're not robots. God didn't make us robots. Mm -hmm. He He gave us. The volition to choose. Mm -hmm. He doesn't take that from us. And in, and when I see this, I see in Jesus' humanity, he also didn't take away Jesus' choice in his humanity mm -hmm. to obey him. Just like he doesn't take away our choice whether we obey him or not. He's given that. So it mm -hmm. says that if, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, then obviously he chose to obey mm -hmm. because he did. Yep. It's kind of deep when you think about it. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, because it's like... Yeah. He sent his son, but mm. he still gave his son and his humanity uh -huh. a choice whether he would obey or not. Obviously, he right. did. And the son said, no man takes my life from me, but, but I, I lay it down. Right. And he struggled, yeah. but he said, not my will, but thy will be done. Yeah, yeah beautiful. Awesome. Nancy, did you have a question? Nancy, you got a question? Go ahead, dear. Actually, um, I just have a comment. Hmm? As many times as I have heard this, explained mm -hmm. i think i think you do the best job of explaining it and i feel totally blessed and totally unworthy that christ did this on the cross for me uh just i mean I, it's inconceivable i agree with you nancy and i have the same attitude and it's really an expression of i'm not worthy i think of in luke 18 where you have the publican and the sinner and they both come into the temple and the public and he's like oh god i'm wonderful i pray i fast i tithe and you know aren't you fortunate that i'll be coming to heaven i'll be the life of the party and blah blah you know that sort of and you have this this sinner it won't even look up and and he beats his chest and he cries out to the lord and what does he say be merciful to me a sinner. And Jesus said, of these two men, that man walked away justified. He walked away. And I think that the Lord is pleased by humility. In fact, uh, God is opposed to the proud, 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us, but gives grace to the humble. And only the humble can receive grace because the, well, the, the, the proud are too arrogant. They, they don't need it. You know, they can make it on their own. So I agree with you, Nancy, and I think that way too, but I think that's what makes grace so marvelous. I think that's what makes grace so wonderful. And grace is unmerited favor, and it is born out of the bounty and good-heartedness and open-handedness of the giver and is in no way predicated upon the beauty or worth of the object. In fact, the object for us is that we are sinners. We are enemies of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are anything but lovely. We were not, are not, and will not ever be beautiful. And yet, while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us, that God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that love is born out of the heart of God because God is love and is in no way predicated upon the beauty or worth of the object. In fact, we are unlovely. But that's what makes him God. And there is nothing good in us. It's all him. And we are just the fortunate beneficiaries of his great love. And I'm with you, Nancy. I have the same feeling. So I love your sentiment, and I appreciate you saying that. It's very, very well put. Thank you. You bet. I mean, it just brings tears to my eyes to think of what he did. Mm-hmm. You know, you just, I don't know. It's beautiful. It's greater love. Right. <laughs> it's a little overwhelming at times, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Anybody else have any other questions? Okay. Well, let's close it out with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these things that we can study and that we can dig into your word and that we can unpack these wonderful, wonderful truths about who you are and what you have done for us and this so great salvation that we are blessed to receive. Uh, that you have given to us. And Father, we just pray that in the days and weeks and months ahead as we continue to study and to gather together, that this will be a time of fruitful understanding, uh, that we can understand these things in a greater way and that we can come to be more and more appreciative of who you are and all that you've done for us. Father, we thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.